Hey everyone, I've been uh, I've been humming and hawing over whether to release this episode or not. Uh, in truth, I've had the outline of season three, and the first episode of season three, ready for quite some time. Uh, for those who are listening right when this is released, this will come quite obvious to you. But for those who listen to it at some point in the future. This is being released 45 days into what most people would call the genocide of Gaza in October and November of 2023. Uh, to date, something like 15,000 Palestinians have died. About six or 7,000 of them have been children. And my reluctance is mostly rooted in the fact that I don't want to distract from what is happening in Palestine. Not only that, but a weird, twisted part of this project that I care so much about is that the success of this podcast is intimately tied to this destruction of Gaza. The two biggest months I've ever had in terms of downloads have been May of 2021 and October of 2023, both corresponding with massive wars in Palestine. And that's a really difficult thing for me to wrap my head around because it means that I will never, ever truly get to enjoy the success of this podcast. Now, with that said, I've spoken to enough people who I really care about, and people who I think care about me, and more importantly than that, people who care about Palestine and its story and its history. And if enough of you have gotten back to me, these people whose advice I value so highly, and told me that it's important that this story continues to be told, even in these difficult times. So I am doing this with mixed emotions. I'm not sure how I will feel once these episodes are released. Uh, but I hope that for some of you who want to continue learning about Palestine, that this podcast continues to be helpful. There's nothing more or less that, uh, that I expect out of this podcast. At the end of the day, I just hope that it's helpful. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be.
Season 2 focused almost completely on the reform period known as the Tanzimat, a decades-long modernization campaign that attempted to simultaneously centralize the state infrastructure throughout the traditionally decentralized Ottoman Empire, while also manufacturing social changes that would help manage this empire of difference. For nearly four decades, the Ottoman Empire attempted to create both a nation and a state at almost any cost. There were numerous reasons why the Ottomans chose to follow through with such an extensive overhaul, but at the core of these reforms was a desire to either placate the great powers of Europe or to compete with them. Now, in the grand scheme of things, we can look back on the Tanzimat period between 1839 to 1876 as the period where the massive gears of modernity began to turn and click with unstoppable force. But despite the Tanzimat's huge transformations, or intrusions, if you look at things from the perspective of the peasants and the Bedouins who had their lives turned upside down by these modernization campaigns, the Ottoman state still had a long way to go in solving the empire's myriad of obstacles. Obstacles that were threatening the empire's very survival. Now, in terms of timeline, we ended off somewhere in the 1860s. And there are countless obstacles at this point plaguing the Ottomans. I mean, for starters, the mere presence of a state-like infrastructure does not mean that the empire has now suddenly reached its optimal administrative arrangement. By the 19th century, the Ottomans, as well as the rest of the world, were relatively new to data collection and data-driven decision-making. And so decisions were often made and implemented with serious blind spots by modern standards. Revising and overturning previous decisions regarding the placement of borders and boundaries within the empire was a part of the Ottoman political reality on a regular basis. Where to set boundaries and why, and who to appoint as administrators over a multi-ethnic empire was a hugely important and hotly contested matter within Ottoman decision-making circles. Now, in addition to that, you have to confront the resentment of your Muslim community that emerged as a result of aggressive secularization campaigns that you've been pursuing since more or less the 1850s policies that were mostly pursued in an effort to placate the great powers of Europe. Just listen to what historian Mahmoud Yazbek has to say about the frustration of the Muslim population at their perceived demotion relative to their sectarian others. Quote, It would appear that instead of the equality it was designed to guarantee between Muslims and non-Muslims, the new legislation partially had the opposite effect, since it sought to change, and thus threatened, the set ways of their traditional societal structures, Muslims remained unsympathetic toward the innovations it brought, whereas the Christians successfully capitalized on the pegs put in place for them, and before long had moved up 
into social and administrative key positions. That the patronizing and often antagonizing behavior, which the representatives of the Christian powers displayed toward the indigenous Muslim population in general, and toward the local Muslim elite in particular, was becoming a major contributing factor, is clear from the reports vice councils were producing by the 1860s. These abound in often bitter complaints about the town's Muslim leadership and the local government officers, and for even the littlest incidents, do not hesitate to seek the intervention of the highest Ottoman officials, and to solicit the interference of their own consuls general or even governments. End quote. So this passage puts two things into perspective. One is that despite significant progress being made in creating a system of equality in the empire, the execution of these policies is far from perfect. But equally as important is the fact that European consuls are still willing and able to intervene over every real or perceived injustice toward their Christian clients. Even after decades of reform, the Ottoman state still cannot confront or even defend itself against the great powers of Europe. Not only that, by the 1870s, the military gap between the Ottomans and their European rivals is, I mean, it's enormous. And if all that was not enough, you then have basic geographic constraints to consider. Even in its shrunken, fractured state, the Ottoman Empire still included parts of North Africa, Anatolia, and most of the modern Middle East. And yet, communication and transportation between these different parts of the empire was infamously rough. Administrative challenges, discontent, logistical nightmares, keep all of those things in mind as I take you back for a moment to the second ever episode of this podcast. For some of you, it may be a few years since you've listened to anything from season one, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a refresher. In episode two of season one, I told you a story directly from the earliest chapters of Islamic history, a story of how Abu Bakr, radiallahu an, the companion of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, stated in no uncertain terms that the caliphate must remain within the tribe of Quraysh if it is to have any legitimacy. I mentioned all the way back then how Abu Bakr and those who immediately followed him and the Umayyads who followed them and the Abbasids who followed them were all from Quraysh. Fact, though it is true that the Muslim world has had many other ruling dynasties, I mean, the Ayyubids and the Seljuks and the Mamluks and others, the Ottomans are the only ruling dynasty outside of Quraysh to carry the title of the Caliphate with any serious and widespread legitimacy. Way back in season two, I mentioned how this would continue to attract little attention so long as the good times kept rolling. Well, by the 1870s, there are no shortage of reasons to begin questioning the very legitimacy 
of the Ottomans. And some in the empire were beginning to question whether the Ottomans have any right at all to rule as caliphs. So what happens then? What happens when the empire's Muslim populations start to ask these introspective questions about legitimacy and justice and rule of law? What if both the empire's Muslim and non-Muslim populations are starting to tell new stories or, or even revive old stories about who they were and who they want to be in the future? What if the people start to imagine a future that doesn't have the sultan in it? What if the empire's Muslim populations are starting to become too frustrated with the increasingly intrusive, and in some cases violent, modernization reforms? The Ottoman reforms were wildly unpopular with the empire's Muslim population, but... So far in the story, the discontent manifested itself mostly in the form of civil strife. In the second half of the 19th century, however, this discontent was beginning to eat away at the Muslim population's confidence in the Ottoman Caliphate itself. Well, you may not be surprised to hear this discontent was not just confined to lay people. At the tail end of the Tanzimat era, many Ottoman statesmen and elites also felt that the reforms had gone too far, too fast, in both their secularization and their centralization. In both the Arabic and Turkish-speaking parts of the empire, reformers were screaming that a change of course was necessary. As Bashir Nafa writes, quote, Whether in Baghdad, Damascus, or Cairo, the rise of the Arab Islamic reformists coincided with the intensified opposition that the young Ottoman, the young Ottomans could be described as a kind of Islamic modernist movement rooted mostly among the Turkish elite. So, that the young Ottomans posed to the Tanzimat centralized order of government. Ottoman Turkish intellectuals and statesmen expressed strong doubts about the concentration of power and the explicitly westernized system of the Tanzimat, which was creating a widening gap between the state and the people. End quote. But just as the challenges of the 19th century gave rise to the Tanzimat, the obstacles which remained in the late 19th century allowed for the emergence of another kind of response. In 1876, Sultan Abdul Hamid II ascends to the throne. And to this very day, there is perhaps no figure in the history of the modern Muslim world who is more hotly contested more enigmatic, more divisive, and more misunderstood than Sultan Abdul Hamid. The evidence is overwhelming that he was, on the one hand, a paranoid autocrat who ruled for nearly 30 years with unquestioned authority, 
He was a recluse, but his influence was omnipresent in a manner only possible in the era of near-complete state sovereignty and control. But at the same time, and contrary to the claims of his detractors, Sultan Abdul Hamid was a visionary and a reformer with a relentless commitment to the simple goals of not losing any more ground to the powers of Europe and closing the gap between the Ottoman Empire and its rivals, two goals which he largely accomplished by the end of his reign. And in a major redirection from the Tanzimat's trajectory, Sultan Abdul Hamid was heavily invested in reviving the Islamic character of the empire. And if you think I'm exaggerating by saying Sultan Abdul Hamid is hotly contested, listen to these two contrasting descriptions of his reign by two very well-known 20th century intellectuals. The first description that I will share with you is an excerpt from The Arab Awakening, written in 1939 by the famed Arab historian George Antonius. In a chapter titled The Hamidian Despotism, he describes Abdul Hamid by saying that, with the rise of the Sultan, quote, An era began which, for its tyranny and corrupt abuse of power, has scarcely been surpassed in history. End quote. Now, keep in mind that Antonius is making this claim when barely a hundred years prior, the Ottoman state had annihilated thousands of Janissaries in the blink of an eye. So, anyways, he goes on to say, quote, The foundations of Abdul Hamid's rule were laid on a basis of espionage and repression. A system grew up in which the spies employed by the Sultan for his political ends became a powerful oligarchy of corrupt ruffians against whom no one, however eminent or innocent, was safe, except perhaps by the timely use of bribery. End quote. Okay, so that was not a particularly flattering take of Sultan Abdul Hamid's reign. Given that Antonius's account of the period is considered a semi-canonical text in the history of the Arab national movement, it is easy to see why Sultan, Sultan Abdul Hamid is not fondly remembered in some circles. Now here's where it gets really interesting though. One of the primary accusations that Antonius levels against Abdul Hamid, so that is the historian George Antonius levels against the Sultan Abdul Hamid, and the Ottomans more broadly is their neglect of the Arab provinces. He uses this alleged neglect to describe the foundational resentment that ended up mushrooming into an Arab national movement in the 20th century. But now I invite you to contrast that, contrast that description with this description from another eminent historian and educator, the Palestinian Abdul Latif Tibawi. His chapter on the subject is called Abdul Hamid's Despotism in Syria, Light and Shade. And already from the title of the chapter, you can see that Tibawi, though still referring to Sultan Abdul Hamid as a despot, is going to attempt something approaching a nuanced revision 
of the Sultan's legacy 30 years after Antonius set the Sultan's memory ablaze. Atlibawi actually starts the chapter by prefacing with a description of the failure of historians such as Antonius in fairly dealing with Abdul Hamid. With that out of the way, he continues by adding, quote, There is abundant evidence to indicate that Abdul Hamid paid special attention to the affairs of Syria and did his best to win the loyalty of the Syrians to his person and his policies. He continued, for example, the practice of sending very experienced governors to the country. End quote. Now that already sounds very different than Antonius, but then Taibawi shifts gears a bit to discuss the Sultan's pan-Islamic worldview. Everything in Abdul Hamid's policies indicate that he was determined to reinvigorate the empire's Islamic character and to extend his claim as caliph not just to Ottoman subjects, but actually as caliph of all Muslims around the world. And on this note, Libawi dives into the state of cultural and spiritual decline in the years preceding Abdul Hamid and the turnaround experienced during his reign. He quotes a missionary observer who had this to say, quote, It was asserted 20 years ago that Islam in Turkey, that is, in the Ottoman lands in general, that Islam in Turkey is going to decay, and that not a new mosque could be seen in the land. From my window, as I write, I can see five new mosques built during the past 20 years, the minaret of the last one just now receiving its top stone. There is, no doubt, a Mohammedan revival. End quote. Both Arabs and Turks, two main ethnic groups that made up the late Ottoman Empire, have chosen to selectively remember, forget, sanctify, and vilify the Ottoman era for their own reasons. And with that in mind, I think the single greatest, most in-depth, most balanced, most nuanced and most comprehensive account of the Hamidian era that I have come across comes from Turkish historian Selim Derengel in his monumental book, The Well-Protected Domains. Early in his book, Derengel comments on the way in which Ottoman administrators and Abdul Hamid continue to be debated in Turkish public discourse and how his work aims to set the record straight. He says, quote, I am interested in how the late Ottoman elite reacted to the world around them. I think it is about time that these men, and that is men like Abdul Hamid, I think it is about time that these men be rescued from both their Kemalist denigrators and their fans on the lunatic fringe of the Turkish right as well as from Western perpetrators of the image of the terrible Turk. Yet, I also hope to abandon wishful thinking, assimilate bad news, discard pleasing interpretations that cannot pass elementary tests of evidence and logic. End quote. Just think, Derengel's book was published 
1999, nearly a hundred years after the end of the Sultan's rule. A century later, Arabs and Turks are still debating the legacy of this long-dead Sultan. I needed to spend some serious time on this subject because Sultan Abdul Hamid isn't just a character in this story. He is the context. His policies, his vision, his ruthlessness, all of it shaped the future of the entire region, including Palestine. And it's hard to listen to this chapter in the history of the region and not pause and ask yourself for a moment, what would you do? How far would you go to save the empire from ruin? Does the end justify the means? Is it best to live in a liberal democracy or under the rule of a benevolent autocrat? And whatever your thoughts are to any of those questions, just know that the shadow of the Sultan will loom very large over this entire season. Thank you.